I think most likely the best known and most uh, memorized verse of the Bible. Hear now God's word. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have eternal life. And thus far the reading of God's word. I've never preached a sermon on John 3.16 before. And I stopped to think, why is that? I don't think, well, apart from once, I can't think of one other time that I've ever heard a sermon preached on John 3.16. And as I reflect on that, I think there are probably two reasons why we tend to shy away from this verse. One is because it's heard so often and it's known so well that we figure it would be shallow for us to try to go and add anything now to that. Everyone knows about John 3.16. On the other hand, and just the opposite, I think we don't want to touch John 3.16 in preaching because there's just so much there that who could preach a sermon adequate to the glory of this text? In fact, I refrain from reading anything but John 3.16 in our scripture reading this morning because if I even begin to try to touch the context and all the wealth of connotations and spiritual applications of this verse, we'd never get out of here. And this is just that important a text in the Bible. And so I don't pretend that we're going to plumb the depths of John 3.16 this morning, but I would like to talk to you about something that really touches my heart about this verse, something that's been very important to me in my life, and that's what I see as the Father's love demonstrated in John 3.16. I think all of us here, probably all of us here, have some, if not many, precious memories of our own earthly fathers and their love for us. You stop and think about that father-daughter banquet that your father took you to, or think about that go-kart that your father helped make. You think about afternoon matinees where daddy was the one who footed the bill. Think about times when you were hurt or in distress and you needed comfort, love, and guidance, and your father was the one who gave it. So we stop and think about it. Fathers and their love can be very precious to us. And I think the experiencing of a father's love is very important as well. Fathers who are faithful in affection and care to their children, generous, thoughtful, supportive of them in trouble, commending them in their accomplishments, firm and guiding them when they stray, interested in them as individuals, skillful in training them, wise in counseling them, always available to them, helping them to grow into maturity, integrity, and hopefully into righteousness. You see, all of this gives to a person, has given to us some measure of security and warmth, focus to our lives, self-acceptance in life, and that's crucial for all of us. A father's love. I, mean, I don't think there's any more touching and emotional subject when you think about it. And yet the inadequacy of human fathers has to be acknowledged as well because none of our fathers completely measured up to what I just described. I think all of us can recall the failings of our fathers, the inconsistencies of our fathers. Our fathers disappointed us, maybe in many ways. Some lacked affection. Some lacked wisdom. Some lacked or appeared to lack the time to give us. And, of course, there have been some individuals who have known the misfortune of not knowing a father's love at all because the father is gone. 
either gone willfully because he abandoned the family or gone because in the providence of God he has died. Scripture teaches us that God is our Father. And can we appreciate that? Can we understand what this means? You bet we can. We can understand the depth and significance of the expression that God is our Father. That thought's meaningful for all of us. You see, some of us will immediately think, when we hear that God is our Father, we'll think of those wonderful traits of our earthly fathers, and we'll say, and our Heavenly Father is much more. He's this and more. Others of us um, will sadly remember the inadequacies of our earthly fathers. And we will form a positive concept of God by contrast, looking to him as the ideal father who will be very different than our earthly fathers and will never disappoint us as our earthly fathers did. And so in one way or another, you see, no matter where you come from, whatever your family life was, one way or another, that God is our father is a very important and meaningful thing for all of us. And the Bible tells us there's two senses in which God can be called a father. And we need to distinguish them very clearly if we're going to understand John 3.16. Two ways in which God is a father. So if you're taking notes, you want to, not, you want to note this right away. That in the first place, God the creator is father to his creature man. I think of that verse, one of my favorite, 1 John 3.1. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called the sons of God. See, commentators argue over that, but in my mind there's really no question in what sense the fatherhood of God is referred to here. Because we are called the sons of God. He's the father to us. As creatures looking to our creator, he is our father. And yet, there's another sense in which there's a father spoken of theologically in the Bible. We think of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a relationship between one person within the Godhead to another person within the Godhead that is the relationship of father to son. And it's that relationship that is emphasized here in John 3.16 where we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You see, it's the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that John 3.16 is talking about. And when we think about the love of God our Father, we need to remember that though this love is expressed as the Creator toward us as His children, the love is manifested in the outworking of what He does through His only begotten Son. And so the love of the Father is the love for us but the love that is manifested through what he does in his son. I want to look at just a number of things this morning, the first of which is the depth of God's love, as John 3.16 portrays it. The second is the measure of love. Thirdly, the supreme value of God's love. And then the everlasting effect of God's love. First, though, the depth of God's love. John 3.16 probably means a lot of things to many of you who have either memorized it or heard the verse before. Come at it from a number of angles. But I think from a literary standpoint, what John is emphasizing, and of course he's only taking the words of Jesus, so what Jesus was emphasizing is this, that God so loved the world, so loved the world. Perhaps the most important word in that verse is the word so or so much. For God so much loved the world. 
Now, what is the measure of God's love? I mean, what is the so much all about? The tendency, unfortunately, it's a theological tendency that has led a lot of people astray, I think, but the tendency even on first reading, for those who have not studied the theology of the New Testament, is to say, well, the so much is how expansive the love of God is. Because look what he loves, the world, and the world's a very big place. And so we read this, that God so loved planet Earth and all those people that are in planet Earth. As a matter of fact, we're going to see later that isn't what the verse means at all. That this does not say that God loves each and every individual on planet Earth, but he loves those who believe in his Son. I mean, that's the thrust of John 3.16. And so if it's wrong to read this, he's so loved, meaning it was so broad, I want to suggest that, in fact, it's the depth of God's love that John 3.16 brings to our attention. He so loved the world. And what is the world? How does John, especially the gospel writer, use this word world? Well, the emphasis when John uses the word world is upon men alienated from God. The emphasis when John talks about the world is not upon planet Earth or upon everybody in the world. The emphasis is upon those in the world who are alien to righteousness and therefore to God. And we can see this in a number of places if you'll just thumb through John's gospel for a moment with me. Look at John 1.10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. The ambiguity is clear there. He made the world, there's planet Earth, and yet John goes on to say, but the world knew him not. It wasn't planet Earth that rejected him. It was man in sin who didn't know him and rejected him. Look at John 12, verse 31. I'm skipping around here, by the way. If you want to, you can take out your concordance. You'll find John uses this word, world, this word, world, more than any other writer in the New Testament. But in John 12, 31, we see it used in the following way. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out, referring to Satan. Satan is the prince of this world. Is he the prince of the cosmos? Is he the prince of everyone who lives in this world? No. But he is the prince of those who are in rebellion against God. John 14, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. Ye know him, for he abideth with you and shall be in you. Now, how can this be? In one verse, actually in one expression, as Jesus used it, he says that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, cannot be received by the world, and those who are in the world do not know him. And he turns right around and says to those who are sitting in the cosmos in the very same room with him, but you know him and he abides in you. The world can't receive the Spirit, but you have received him. Don't you see clearly there, Jesus is not saying all mankind or planet Earth. He means those who are in rebellion against God cannot receive the Spirit. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, we observe the same logic. If the world hateth you, ye know that it hath hated me before it hateth you. If ye were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, now, what's the word world mean here? Does it mean everybody who lives on planet Earth? If it does, Jesus says, you are not of the world. 
which means you might, what, the invasion of the body snatchers or something. They aren't from planet Earth? No. He says, you're not of that ethical or spiritual mindset. You don't belong to the world. You don't take your origin from the world. I've called you out of the world. Look at John 17, verse 6. One more consideration here. I manifested thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Out of the world, while yet living in the world. The word world can be used in more than one way. And the emphasis in John's gospel, you see then, is that the world is the place of rebellion against God. 1 John 2.16 says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes from the world. The world and its desires pass away. And so we see that John, when he tells us that God so loved the world, is not talking about how wide the love of God is. He's talking about how deep the love of God is. Do you understand? Who does God love? He doesn't love people who've been cleaned up, put on their church clothes, acting nicely, singing his praises, doing their best to be part of his people. He loves those who aren't his people. He loves those who are in rebellion against him. He loves those who are the world. That's why God so loved, because he loved the world. You might expect him to love angels or saints, but it's not that. He loves the world. And what's the measure of God's love? How do we mark it out? How do we appreciate the depth of God's love? Well, ask yourself, what is the measure of love? I suggest that what John 3.16 says conforms to something we know in our common sense, that the measure of love is giving. You say you love someone, ask yourself, what do you give for that person? What do you sacrifice for that person? How generous are you to that person? How concerned are you to give of yourself for the well-being of that person? Generosity and self-sacrifice are clearly marks of love among men. And it's seen here, too, that God so loved that he gave. God is a giving God. Now, let me give you some alternatives. It could say here, and theologically it would be understandable, that God so loved that he waited for us to return to him. Instead of slamming the door, he said, okay, I have an open door. Now, if you do what's right and you get back here and show that you're concerned, then I'll let you in my family. You see, that would be God so loved that he didn't slam the door in our face. See, giving is not necessary. Giving is not something that is somehow incumbent upon God. Giving is not something that he owes us. He loved us so much. He loved the world so much that he gave of himself to the world. And where he owed us nothing but judgment and curse, he rather gives us something very precious indeed, as we'll see in a moment. I want you to think for a moment about the Christmas mentality that probably all of your fathers instilled in you. Rightly or wrongly, we've talked about this before, but you know, it goes something like this. If you're bad, there'll be no gifts at Christmas. Or the, uh, the liberal version is, if you're bad, they won't be as nice, the gifts. But if you're bad, no gifts this Christmas. And if you're good, if you're a good little boy, then there'll be all sorts of nice gifts under the tree for you. You see, God doesn't have that Christmas mentality, though. 
With God, his love as a father is shown in giving his most precious gift to those who have been very bad children. You see how this heavenly father is so different? God so loved those in rebellion against him. He so loved the world that he gave. And I want you to see thirdly the supreme value of God's loving gift. What did God give? He gave thousands of dollars to everybody. He gave good health to everybody. He gave everybody thrills and happiness. No. You see, God could have done that as the creator. He could have provided us with all sorts of treats. But you know, he did something very, very different than that. The Bible says he gave his son. His son. You fathers here, how many of you, apart from when you're disciplining your children from being bad, how many of you, in all seriousness, would give your sons away? I wouldn't. I don't think you would either, no matter how frustrated you get. If you love your children, you don't give them up. But God so loved the world that he gave, and what he gave was his son. I can't help but remember the story of Abraham and the dedication and faith Abraham had when God said, Abraham, you're to go up to Mount Moriah and you're to sacrifice your son. And you know, we praise Abraham for that dedication, being willing to sacrifice his only son. But you know, what's really interesting about that is that the story tells us Abraham didn't have to go through with it. A substitute was provided. He didn't end up sacrificing his only son. But in the story of God's own son, there was no substitute for Jesus. He was the substitute. God so loved the world that he gave, and he gave his son, and he gave him completely to the point of death. And you know the son that he gave, the Bible reminds us, is the only begotten son. I don't want you to think God has all sorts of sons, you see. And he decided, well, as much as I hate to give up one of them for the salvation of the world, I'll give up one of them. No, the Bible says his one and only son. You know, the test of Abraham's faith was not just that he would be willing to sacrifice a son, but that the son that he was to sacrifice was the son of promise. Abraham couldn't have children. His wife couldn't have children. God, in a double miracle, makes it possible, even in old age, for them to have a son. They hadn't trusted God. They hadn't believed his promises. Abraham had gone his own way to try to fulfill the promises of God. That was wrong. What's left? Only trust in God. And God provides that. And so finally, the promises of God that Abraham will be the father of a multitude through one son is going to be fulfilled. And then God says that one son is to be sacrificed. His one and only son. And Jesus was the one and only son to God the Father. The Greek here is monogenes. And I only tell that to you. I realize most of you don't read Greek because I think you can see the meaning of the word if you just look at monogenes. Mono, like a monaural recording, one. And genes is like genus, only one in that genus, only one of a kind. Only begotten, meaning one of its kind, the unique, solitary Son of God. You see the supreme value, how God demonstrates his love? He demonstrates his love to those who don't love him, who are in rebellion against him. He loves the world, and he loves the world so much that he gives to the world. And what he gives to the world, there couldn't be anything more precious. 
for this father to give, but his one and only son. And then fourthly, look at the everlasting effect of this gift that God gives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now how can I tell you about that? There's nothing in our experience that's everlasting. And we live in an age of planned obsolescence, we've been told many times, and so it's almost as though purposefully we are not to know things that go on and on and on. But forgetting uh, either the malice or the defect of men and how the things they make don't last, even the mighty redwoods don't last forever as long as they have been there. Nothing in our experience goes on and on and on. And what God tells us is he's offering us life that will never end. A gift that will never wear away. <clears throat> that will never become outdated. That will never become defective, break down, never have to be replaced. We have a hard time imagining that. Life that goes on and on and on. Just think about that. Not only do we not understand things going on and on and on, but we don't understand life going on and on and on. For all of us, life is defined almost in terms of death. Life is the opportunity we have until the door is closed. Until death comes. And all of us, have, uh, and all the people we've known, have known either they were subject to or actually did die. God so loved the world that he's giving us a gift that will never wear away. A gift, you can't imagine this, of life that shall never end. How do you enjoy this love of God? <clears throat> it's important this morning that I emphasize that you don't automatically enjoy this love. In fact, from the biblical standpoint, coming to have God as your Father is a gift of grace. Coming to know God as your Father is not something that's natural, it's not automatic, and it's not true of all people. Not everyone is a child of God. And we like to sing songs that suggest otherwise, and of course the secular world is glad to believe that in its delusion. But the Bible says not everyone knows God as a father. In fact, Ephesians, the second chapter, tells us we've all been born as sons of disobedience. We are children not of God, we are children of the evil one. And our desire naturally, in our own strength, and without the intervention of God in our life, our desire is to do the things of our father, the devil. We are sons of disobedience. But John tells us in John 1, verses 12 and 13, that as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them gave he authority to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To, many, to as many as received him, God gave authority to become sons. Not everyone is a son of God, but those who receive the Son of God, Jesus Christ, can become sons of God. John 3.16 puts it this way, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see that emphasis upon those who believe? God's love is directed not toward mankind in general, but to those who will believe in His Son. What does it mean to believe on His Son? We talk about that in church all the time. We rarely explain it. Maybe you've heard that before and you've asked yourself, do I believe in the Son of God? 
Well, there are two things to simplify matters that are entailed in believing on him, as the Greek tells us. In the first place, one must believe from the bottom of his heart that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and that his work on the cross was for the salvation of sinners and that he was raised from the dead and is now Lord over all. From the bottom of our hearts, we must believe certain points of information. We must take Jesus at his word that he is the Son of God. We must believe that his work is as the Bible declares it to be, for the salvation of men, and that he wasn't left in death but was raised from the dead and now is Lord over all. We must believe these things to be true, but further, the Bible says, if we're going to believe upon him, we must repent of our sinful lives and now trust upon him, trust upon him only, trust upon him completely, to gain a right standing in God's eyes and to be adopted into the family of God. Jesus must be seen as your only hope upon whom you are depending to carry through the day of judgment and to make acceptable in the eyes of God. I remind you that these truths, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for the salvation of men, that he was raised from the dead and is Lord over all, are believed by the demons. That information, although not everyone in our world believes it, and so it's an accomplishment to come to that conviction, nevertheless that conviction does not save anyone. The demons believe these things. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know he was raised from the dead, but they will not be saved. And by the way, the demons trust him too. Trust him to be exactly as he said, their judge. If you're going to believe in the name of Jesus Christ for salvation, it means not simply to believe these facts, and they're very important, it means to entrust yourself to his care. Not to trust that, yes, he's going to come down in judgment upon you someday, but to trust that he, in fact, will love you and save you despite your worthlessness, despite the fact that you've not done anything to earn it, despite the fact that you couldn't do anything to earn it, but just simply because you have repented and have come to him and said, I know this is the only way. And I want to emphasize this morning that a person is not saved because he or she believes that Jesus died for me. You may not be able to get yourself to that point this morning. You may not be able to say, I have all the confidence that when he died on the cross, he died for me. But you must get to the point where you say, the only hope I have is Jesus and I'm trusting in him that I am going to be lost apart from him, that I'll be part of this world that God will eventually judge if it weren't for him. And I just hope by his mercy and his grace he'll receive me. I'm not asking for the confidence that Jesus died for you. I'm asking that you simply give up your own efforts and entrust yourself only to him. For God so loved the world, the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever Trust in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The third chapter of Ephesians, Paul says, I kneel in prayer to the Father, that he may grant you strength and power through his Spirit in the inner being. May you be strong to grasp with all of God's people what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and to know it, though it is beyond mere knowledge. See, trust in Christ this morning. And in so doing, you'll come to know, finally, in the most blessed way, more than anything earth could offer, the Father's love. Let's pray.
Father, we, we wonder that we could even begin by calling you Father. That you should love us so much to consider us your children. We confess this morning that we have not in ourselves the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. That we are not naturally your children. We are naturally in rebellion against you. We are naturally orphaned from the family of God. We have lived to ourselves. We have been so rebellious, and so self-serving, and so unloving. We have been disobedient. But we pray this morning that the truth and the good news that we've heard in this precious verse might change all of that for us that we might indeed believe on the name of Jesus Christ, believe that he is the Son of God, that he died upon that cross as a substitute for sinners, that he was raised in vindication from the dead and now reigns over all as Lord, and that we might see in him our only hope, trust him alone, trust him solely, and trust him completely to bring us through the day of judgment that we might be restored to your family. Father, how we thank you that you adopt children, that you take us. Though we don't belong to you naturally and supernaturally and graciously, bring us to your family. Thank you for loving us. And not loving us just in a tolerant way, but loving us in a giving way. Thank you for giving us the most precious gift of supreme value, your only son. And thank you for the life everlasting, the unending life that we shall experience only because you've been good enough to father us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.